My name's Andy Kelly. I'm a pastor here at Water's Edge Church. And just like Carrie said, we exist here to love God and others in Christ. If you're new here, we welcome you here. There's connection cards that we have available for you that you can fill out and let us know who you are. You can fill out as much or as little as you like. Everybody, I would encourage you to fill these out just to let us know how we and our team can be praying for you. And uh, I want to ask a question to start our conversation today. And sometimes we have times where we share together. Sometimes we have times where we reflect. This one's like one where you could just share openly. I'll call it a popcorn question, where you could popcorn a response. And it's going to piggyback a little bit off of what we were talking about last week. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'll give you the context. Uh, But what are some of the common proverbs or sayings that were part of your family or part of your upbringing or culture by and large? For instance, uh, my own was mi casa es su casa, which meant my fridge is your fridge, and unfortunately, your fridge is my fridge. Um, I was that annoying kid that would go in people's fridge right away, and now I'm that annoying adult who does the same thing. Ask Matt. I did it the other day. Uh, Another one uh, is I got to do what I got to do. That's one that I heard my dad talk about. Deb shared yesterday uh, that she had an axiom of make yourself at home, which meant, hey, hey, you're welcome here and you're free to serve yourself. So what are some common axioms you heard uh, or that maybe you, uh, you said growing up or even now? Me. The more the merrier. That's a great one. Shoot for the stars. You can hit the fence post on the way down. Shoot for the stars and you can hit the fence post, fence post on the way down. Any other ones? Follow the golden rule. Do unto others. If there's a will, there's a way. Any others? I've, I've, heard, I've shared this with others. I've heard, pick, it, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. What is it? Pull yourself up. By your Pull yourself up. Oh, yeah. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Pick yourself up. <laughs> Tear. Practice makes better. That's cute. That's cool. Huh? You play the way you practice. All right. That's good. That's great. I wanted to incept that idea of uh, a proverb or axiom because we ended last week's message talking about Generation Z, uh, this next upcoming generation, and wanting to reach them with God's love, with God's saving truth. That Generation Z, these are ages, correct me if I'm wrong, 11 to 26-year-olds who are known uh, philosophically as expressive individualists. These who have grown up in a culture axiom that says, follow your heart, which is somewhere in every Disney movie in the last 20 years, follow your heart. Or as Zendaya said, just try really hard to be you. And these expressive individualists not only want to chart their own journey, but they want to articulate, articulate their own identity. That's, that's, their, that's been embedded in them, enculturated in them, that they need to articulate their own identity, which has led to an insurmountable amount of stress on them. Because neurologically, they're not at a place where they can do that. They're still discovering who they are, and God is still revealing themselves to them as their children, that they don't need to create their own identity. They need to find their oneness with God as God's beloved. Now, as I say that, Gen Z doesn't want to hear me say that. They are in a technology information-saturated culture where they're being inundated by Twitter-like tritisms that I'm calling. 
And what they crave are spaces to be heard because the stress they feel to articulate their own identity has led to greater amounts of suicide, mental illness, depression, and of course, loneliness. This technocratic society we live in has led our youth to feel completely alone. And so they desire places to be safe. And even as we shared that, as I shared that yesterday, there was a Gen Z who came to me and wanted me to share this with you. Her name was Cheyenne. She said, we want radical acceptance. Regardless of where we are at in life, socially, mentally, spiritually, economically, we want others, particularly our older generation, to be there with us and to stay curious, to ask questions about our lives and stay engaged, build the rapport and credibility and honest relationship before explicitly bringing Jesus into the conversation. Exude his love, and over time, you're going to draw us in, and our curiosity will bring us to Jesus. Uh, Ultimately, trust that you authentically want to know us, and I know Jesus will do the rest of the work and introduce himself through the relationships in God's own way. We want to feel safe because they have not felt safe. They don't feel safe for many reasons. So I say that because that segues well into our conversation today about being a safe place and conversely not being a safe place. Just as uh, Carrie shared, we're in the book of James. And James, or Jacob, as he's known truly, he provides us some proverbial gut, punch-in-the-gut truths as we walk into it. And he, he, he provides a really challenging question that, I, that, that I'm seeing arise out of the scripture what makes us unsafe as a church community? And really, the way I'm prefacing it is, who, who is the enemy of the church? Who, who is the enemy of the church? Now, caveat, that's not the spiritual enemy, not the devil. Who is the enemy of the church that may be influenced by the devil or the enemy? And I'm going to answer that likely with, I'm going to answer that question with a, uh, it's almost certainly this. It's not completely this, because I know there are different forces that oppose a church, but the enemy of the church is almost certainly, or very much likely, the enemies in the church. And when you look at who James is writing to as his audience, and some of the things that we do, when you look at Jesus' ministry, and the fact that his greatest opposition were God's people, quote-unquote, we have to consider that the greatest obstacle to the growth and sustainability of the church is our incapacity to love others. It is. Now, nothing's going to stop the work of God. Nothing's going to stop the work of God, but we can be a hindrance to it. We can be a hindrance to it. And um, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying me, but maybe sometimes I am saying you and me. And... uh, yeah, God is, God is for the world. And uh, because God's for the world, we want to be for the world. And so that's the question I'm asking today. I think it frames a follow-up question is, what are some of the attributes of the adversaries among us? I think a safer way to say that is, what are some of the adversarial attributes within us? What are some of the adversarial attributes within us? Jen... Vahala, she said something really prophetic about James' book, that the first chapter 
And in the beginning of the second chapter, where we're talking about our need to persevere, our desire for wisdom, this is what we've gone through. Talking about our propensity towards wealth as a God, uh, our enticements towards sin. Today we're talking about adversarial attributes among us, within us. We're talking about favoritism next week. These are all an opportunity, as Jen says, and I agree, to reflect, okay, God, what do you want to say to me about this? before we point the finger. These are opportunities to say, okay, how am I exhibiting these behaviors? So again, what are some of the attributes of the adversaries among us? I'm gonna ask you if you're physically able to stand out of respect for God's word. We're reading James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, and you'll probably hear some familiar uh, verses here. James writes this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his, I'm going to add her or her face in the mirror, and after looking at oneself, goes away and immediately forgets what one looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That is God's word for us. You may have a seat. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Again, this is a time for reflection. These first chapter, next, chapter, next week too, will be a time where we self-reflect. And if we get into that place where we think of others, oh, this first point's about anger. Let's just say that. Andy's kind of an angry person. Andy needs to listen to this. We are actually exhibiting adversarial attributes. And that actually leads us to our first point today. Uh, what are some of the adversarial attributes within us? The first one, really first of two, is combative. Combative. Now, there's a lot of categories that people talk about when they talk about the church. Hypocritical self-righteous, authoritative, critical, which is a little different than hypocritical. I think within these two categories, they're helpful because all those can kind of fit into this. Uh, our two categories, just by way of preview, are those who are combative, those who are uncommitted or nominal. And we'll talk about what that means, but those fuel hypocrisy in critical natures. And, and I think they are helpful lens for us to self-reflect. So number one, adversarial attributes for us is when we are combative. Christians who are always talking, voicing our opinions, and are a safety concern. 
Uh, these are Christians who are always talking, voicing our opinions and our safety concern, reminiscent of the Proverbs, James presents his own proverb. Dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now this anger is not righteous wrath, as you may have heard about. Uh, righteous wrath or anger is rooted deeply in love. Like there is a righteous wrath that God has that's deeply protective and therefore opposed to something or someone that is hurting one's beloved, even if it's us hurting ourselves. That's an okay anger, so to speak, but it's rooted in love and conveyed in love. This is not that. This is unholy human anger that James is talking about. He says it in here, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is converse to God's wrath. This is our anger. And we need to get rid of the moral filth and evil that's so prevalent and instead humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I'll talk about what that means. But first, we want to talk about what are the telltale signs of like human fury? What are some telltale signs of the combativism that's among us? One is someone who's always talking. Someone who's always talking. Everyone who should be quick to listen. If we're not quick to listen, we're either ignoring others, which we'll get back into our second point, and or we're dominating much of the conversations. Uh, we all know, just as Cheyenne talked about, like to love is to listen. In fact, there's a famous quote by a doctor somewhere that said, to listen is so close to loving that to the common person, it's nearly indistinguishable. It is. And when we're unable to listen because we're dominating conversations, this begins a bit of a character issue that slowly crescendos. Crescendos into what? Well, that's the next point. Having very, very strong opinions. That's being slow to speak. The difference between not listening and not listening and always talking is the belief that what I have to say is more important than what you have to say. We're always talking, and when we're always talking, we have very strong opinions. And it's okay to have strong beliefs, no doubt. If you know me, I have them. And I probably talk a lot if you know me. But when we're able to create space for others and their beliefs, even if we are right, we are wrong. If we can't create space for others to feel safe, then we become a detriment to the cause of Christ. Now, this is where I need to bring in a side note regarding mental illness. Because some signs of mental illness, unfortunately, include a lot of talking, strong opinions, and a lot of space for you and I. And those struggling with this still require our deep compassion. It's in those moments and maybe those days where we just got to continue to ask God or just ask God for, for healing and to thank God for the good moments. Um, that side, we, we can be kind and gracious and, and state our desire to hear less. If there's somebody in your orbit that struggles with this and talks a lot, you're free to say, hey, I see you, I love you. Maybe even add like, hey, there, may, there doesn't seem like much space for me in this conversation, so I'm just going to um, create some space right now and I'll come back to you. That's okay. Now, when I say this, this is not about those who are struggling with mental illness. This is about 
those who are quick to anger among us, the dominators, um, those who mirror a lot of the division that plagues our social landscape, those that mirror, to use the language in the scripture, the cable news discipleship and the bipartisan political proclivities uh, that demonstrate this immature ability uh, to not listen, but just keep speaking and speaking about issues and not seeing the issues on the other side, the other camp, not acknowledging that whatever worldly solution we provide also comes with its own problems. This is what's plaguing a lot of the church. Rather than seeing the other, we double down, which leads into the third member of the unholy trinity of combativism, and that's anger. That is anger. When we become a safety concern, always talking, strong opinions, and safety concern. When we're quick to anger, we become unconsciously filed in people's mental categories as someone to avoid, which can make someone who exhibits anger even more angry. If we're repeatedly angry, we'll lose people in our lives. And I want to pause here. If there's somebody that you're dealing with in terms of anger and unsafety, of course we want to surround you as a church and help you with that. Please let me know. But from the onlookers, if we are not quick to listen and therefore always talking, if we are not slow to speak and therefore voicing strong opinions, if we are not slow to become angry, if we're quickly angry, we become a safety concern and we exhibit, and I don't like cussing in church, but I think it is memorable. We exhibit this A-S-S quality to ourselves. I'm not going to say the word out loud because here's what's important. God does not act like an A-S-S. He doesn't. The scripture says that he tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us that he is quick to listen. The scripture says in Romans 2.4 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, that he's actually patient with us, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, not wanting anybody to perish. This is who God is. And when we spend time with this God, he begins to calm the storms within. That's what I want to make sure is clear and calms the A-S-S in all of us. It's memorable. I don't know if I should have done it, but it was memorable. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Here's a question for you to think about. This is probably too intimate to have in our prayer parent share, but I'd love to create space for you to think about this. When is it difficult for you to restrain your anger? And how do you seek to do so? When is it difficult for you and I, for us, to restrain our anger and how do we seek to do so? Take a moment to think about it. Five years ago, my cholesterol was 100 points too high. Yeah, it was high. It was high. It's probably 20 points too high still, but it, it was skyrocket high. It was at 252, I think that's what it was but that's like, a, it should be at 150-ish. Am I right, Carrie? Does that sound right? Yeah, it's pretty close. Anyway, the doctor was like, 
it's sky high. And um, I don't like dieting. I love eating, if anybody knows me. And I'll let you take me out to eat anytime. Um, or I'll take you, no problem. But one of the best tips I was given is to crowd out my plate. To crowd out my plate. So if you have a plate full of steak and potatoes, that you don't just get rid of it all, but you crowd out your plate. So you throw in some bok choy or sweet potato fries, or in this case, Brussels sprouts and butternut squash, that you crowd it out. That when I have my hankerings at that 9 p.m. time-ish, that I don't go for the peanut M&Ms or the gummy bears, though I do sometimes, but reach for the frozen mangoes. Crowd out some of the bad with some pretty good stuff. If you're going for three slices of pizza, crowd it out with just one slice and a Greek salad, something like that. And um, God has given us a few things to crowd out our words that are very quick. God has given us things to crowd out even our anger. God has given us prayer. Just in that moment when you prayed to think through the times of when you quick to anger, in the moments when you are angry, that's a great moment to prayer, to crowd out the anger that's on your plate, to invite some prayer in the plate. God has also given us the scriptures to crowd out some of the expectations we put on others as well as the expectations we put on ourselves. To recognize the scriptures aren't about perfect people. They're about God's interaction with imperfect people. The scriptures provide us this key opportunity to self-examine and freely ask, as a psalmist asks, search me, O God. Let me know if there's any offensive ways within me. That's how we crowd it out. One sign of a person who is in anger recovery is humility and even curiosity. Okay, what's going on here, God? What's going on with me? Why am I feeling this way? Why do I feel the need to pursue this person in anger? This is what we're talking about here. That, yeah, we get rid of all the moral filth and evil that probably fuels this human anger and humbly accept the word, to come to God's word and see what God has for us so that he can save us in that moment. Would someone describe you and I as curious? particularly in heated conversations? I would hope so. So a next step for this, and we'll talk about this later, is is to read God's word with curiosity and reflective self-examination. To read, even explore with freedom. Not to study it, but just to read it freely. To see imperfect people and a God who is trying to encounter and save and love them. So, that's our hope here, is that we take next steps with God. And actually, you may be thinking, or there'll be people thinking of us, I think about it too, a lot of my life, uh, that there's no time for that. I don't have time to read God's word. And that dips our toe into the second point today. When we don't have space for things that matter like this, that the adversarial attributes within us are not only combativism, but also nominalism. That's just like a hokey word for lack of commitment. It's Christian by title who don't have time for their faith. Another adversarial trait in the church is this nominalism. And I don't, I'm not, I don't, I love you guys. I, I really think you're all very great peacemakers. You're all in. I mean, I think most of our church serve on a Sunday team. I think we're all in and we love each other. 
But these are things that we need to be aware of uh, that can slowly seep into our lives. Things that the enemy can seep into our souls if we are left unguarded and unprotected. I just want to name that. It's things in my own life. I mean, I grew up. I said yes to Jesus at a young age, at 12 at a camp. But then when lifeguarding and drinking came in, I, I took a walk. I said, Lord, I need some time. But the beautiful thing about God is even when I was uncommitted, he was committed. And he is committed to you. So much so that he, traces, he just pushes that anger out with his love and he puts you on fire. He does put you on fire. But let's get back into it. Nominal, nominalism are Christians by title who don't have time for their faith but really don't make time for their faith. And if you are, if you're looking for God, Hillary, if you're curious, I'm not talking about you. You're in a searching place and you're free to talk about this, which I love about you. Can I give you a hug right now? You know I love you, dude. Come on, girl. Oh, you're like, That's, this ain't about you. You know, if you're like, if you were burned by the church and you're like, maybe I want to give it another church, this isn't about you. This is about lukewarm Christianity. Those who said yes, you know, those who said yes, but maybe only got their quote unquote fire insurance, if you know what I mean. That said, I, I said yes to God. I was born again, but don't really look that different. And what this conversation does is it dips its toe into a conversation that he has later on about faith and works. How do you know if a person is truly saved? Well, we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, by God's love alone. It precedes anything else. It's not our repentance that comes first. It's God's loving forgiveness. It's his desire to love us. It's the fact that God would rather die than be without us. That's first. That's grace. That's it. We are saved by faith alone. But when we receive that faith, we, we freely want to work with God. Because as Paul writes, we're compelled by the love of God. We just want, we're in, we're in, we're, we're stoked. And, and it's not all the time, it's a process because God continues to save us. God is continuing a work, the scripture says, that he's carrying to completion. Yes, we're saved at one point, but he continues to save us. That's his thing. As we turn to him humbly, like, oh yeah, we're surrendered to God's work and will in and through our lives. This is what we're talking about when James says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at their face in a mirror and after looking at himself or herself goes away and immediately forgets what that one looks like, what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, we freely work out of God's love that freely flows and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they are blessed in what they do. We submit to God's precepts in our life because we know they bring life. That they know that in the end, they bless us. This is what Jeremiah talks about, that he'll write their law on our minds, write it in our hearts. I will be God and they'll be my people. This is what Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word and obey. Does that mean I have to be like radically sold out all the time? No. I mean, that would be great if we all were radically sold out all the time. I'm not. But it does mean that when we, say, we wholeheartedly say yes to Jesus, we know that we're on a journey with God who is committed to us. I mean, the fact that you're even here right now, open and to listen to what is a hard conversation, is a demonstration of like, yeah, I'm in. And I want you to discern what God has for you. What word does God have for me in this? Even Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, 
there's a lot there, but if, there, if it, which is the work in the church, is burned up because its materials are shoddy, but its foundation is in Christ, the builder will suffer loss but will be saved. So I'm not here telling who's in and who's out. That's not up to me. That's not up to me. And I do believe grace prevails. Our goal is to encourage each other to take a next step with God. And if you're, not, if you're a non-nominal Christian, that's exciting. It's like, okay, I want to take a next step with God. That, that's a great sign. What's God's next step for me? In fact, non-nominal Jesus followers, they find, make, create, and this one's really important, reconfigure spaces in order to contemplatively receive God's love, to prayerfully discern what God's priorities are in their lives, to freely self-examine and confess the areas where we sin and repent. I fall short. That's what he's talking about at the end, to keep oneself from the pollution that will happen, decisions that we make, decisions that we don't make that hurt ourselves and others. And speaking of others, non-nominal Christians love to see others. And, and to see themselves and others, not to project our own journey, but to recognize that our fellowship is one of the fellowship of sufferings, that we are called to love and grieve with one another. And then, yes, we are called to serve others, to look after the orphans and widows in distress. And it's not just relegated to that, but the marginalized, the fatherless, the poor, the aliens or the immigrants. When we fail to do these, we kind of forget what we look like. We forget who we are, and that can crescendo. But don't worry, God's all in. He's got your back. You are his good work, God's good work that he's carrying to completion. And I don't think what makes a Christian nominal is defiance. I don't think someone's like, do you know what? I said yes, but I don't want to have anything to do with God. I think there's actually something else that makes nominal Christians in our day and age that makes me show nominal characteristics. I think many in our culture are sick with hurry. I think that's what really gets us. I think that's the way the enemy works, is that we're sick with hurry. In a culture of hurry, particularly Western culture, ethics become optional. Ethics become optional. Everybody know, ever hear the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells his tale. It's really informed a lot of uh, some laws in the, in the U.S. The Good Samaritan is a parable that Jesus tells in order to help people understand who their neighbor is and what it means to love your neighbor. And in this parable, there is a Jew who's on a difficult road and gets beat up and is half dead on the road. And there's three people that encounter this, good, this, uh, this Jewish person. One is a, a priest, and the priest... Uh, is unable to help the person for various reasons. Then there's a Levite who comes from a, like a religious tribe. They too walk by the person. And then there's this ethnically dreaded Samaritan who, who surprisingly and sacrificially stops, sacrifices their time, sacrifices their finances to save this person who culture would deem as their enemy. And uh, what's interesting is in, in a recent blog by Yale president, he talks about a study done with the Good Samaritan. Rick actually got me onto this last week, and I thought it would be a really uh, insightful way to help us understand how hurry leads to nominalism. He said, uh, the old president said this, that one of the classic studies from the field of social psychology 
takes the Good Samaritan as its jumping off point. In the 1970s, two psychologists conducted an experiment to understand why people do or don't help. They chose a group of seminary students who were studying to be ministers. The students were told they needed to go to a nearby building to prepare sermons on what else? The Good Samaritan. They were divided into three groups. Three groups. The first group was told they had plenty of time before they were needed to get to that other building to begin their studies. The second group was told they needed to hurry but they would, or they would be late, but they might be on time. The third group was told, you're already late. You need to get there. So we have three different students on their way to work on sermons on the Good Samaritan. As they are walking to that building, they place in their path actors who are hurting, needing help, pretending to be very ill. In some cases, the actors are lying on the sidewalk, and the seminary students had to physically step around them in order to get by them. The researchers wanted to know who would stop the help. Well, not a lot. Two-thirds of the people who were early did stop the help. Two-thirds of that one class who knew they had time did stop the help. Fewer than half of those who were on time stopped the help. And only 10% of those who were late stopped to help these people who were very ill. That means 90% of the students thought it was more important to rush to work on the sermons on the Good Samaritan than to take care of someone who was sick or needed care. And, and, and potentially, that, that may be the real lesson in that parable. Maybe it's not the priest is a bad person or the Levite is a or bad people. They're just busy. They're just busy. And there is a cost to following Jesus. We will find life if we submit to that cost, but a lot of times it's going to just cost us something else. We have to give up something. We have to reconfigure our schedule in order to participate in serving others. So that's a question I do want us to reflect on together. I, I wrestle with that. As a leadership team, we talked about how this can be these are intense questions, and if you're new here, you're like, man, I don't want to share this with others. But I'm going to ask the question regardless. What is one thing you can give up? I'm not asking you to do anything this week. I'm asking, what is something that you can prune in your life in order that we can start serving those who are in distress? And I know some of us are already doing that, and we see the courageous efforts. We see Casey and Matt bringing in Sky and Ace, and we're like, man, that, that would be really hard. And there are things that they are giving up. And they're also giving up some of their own pride by asking for help. That's a wonderful thing you can give up in the process. But there's things in their schedule that they have to give up. We have to give up in order to help the destitute, the poor, the immigrants, the marginalized. And the beautiful thing is we're aware as a church that this is a God's invitation for us by and large. That we're seeking to expand our missional frontier. And I'll talk about that later. But what is something that we can take off our plate in order to add some of these greens, that is God's goodness. Some of the squash, that is God's squishy loveness. Okay, I don't have anything like that. Nothing like that. But, uh, <laughs> All right. Think about it. I, think, I don't think I'm going to make you guys discuss this because it's a hard question. But it will be a good next step, and we'll have some conversation next week for sure. I do want to say a word on the enemy. 
because there is an enemy. And he loves a tactic of blame and shame. And combative people, they love to blame others. Nominal people love to blame circumstances. Good followers of Jesus love to shame ourselves. And this is not an opportunity for shame. This is an opportunity for those who remember, oh, I'm all in. What does God have for me? And because I know God is for me, what may he want from me? This is that type of conversation. It's a Romans 8.1 where we know there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And we can be curious as a people about what God has for us. Knowing that, hey, we might not be enough. We'll fall short. We stray sometimes. Our mind wanders. We get angry. But we can turn to the God who's patient and turn to the God who's kind. Amen? So the next steps for our message for us is one I repeated. Find a way, reconfigure a way, just explore, study, enjoy, or rest in the scriptures. This would be an a personal next steps. And one thing I want us to know is that we're starting our groups in March and it will likely be a study on James. That's a great way to start thinking through, okay. Next week, you can read James 2, 1 through 13. Between, before, between now and next week, that's one thing you could do. Okay, I'm reading James 2, 1 through 13. That's right, Jen. Um, crew conversations. As we meet and talk with one another, continue the conversations like, hey, what's one thing I need to quit so that I could free up some more space? in my life. I love that. I'm telling you not to do something for our next step. That's a gift. And then we have some great upcoming trips as a church that we are discerning as a team. Carrie mentioned this. Uh, oh, I made a mistake. 4-1 is a TJ house building trip, not an orphanage trip. We're going to build a, go build a house. We would love to take a whole crew of us down there. And that is just to plant seeds of what God may have for us as a church. On May 6th, I mean, if we want to take our whole church, I'd love to, but we want to, we're going to go visit Dora Faith. It's an orphanage down in La Mission, which is a little bit south on the one uh, that we want to look at for fu future partnerships with our church. I'm really looking forward to that, and I, I love, I'd love to bring a crew down there and figure that all out. Um, and then there's some other things we're doing, like basketball camps that are not for other Christian kids, so I love them. They're for our kids, and they're not, and some kids who may be see seeking Jesus or kids who need help. Coco. All of those are step three. There would be awesome ways to bring people, bring friends to our experience about foreign languages. Just wanted to do something possible. Yeah. It's not going to be like super saturated with church lingo, but yeah. a very good opportunity to bring that in. Yeah. Thank you. Great, great. And we're going to continue to talk about this, but if you're a person who likes to save the day, the calendar person, save those dates. Basketball camp for our kids, non church kids and kids in need. All right? Uh, I'm going to pray for us and just really grateful for you. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not angry, Lord. That any emotion you exhibit is because of your love, and that's the love that drove you to the cross. It says that while we were far from you, that while we were even enemies, that you died for us, God. And so, Lord, we, we want to take note of that and say yes to you again, but say yes, we need your help still. There are areas in my life where I am strongly opinionated and can be a safety concern. So God, would you intervene? Would you remind me, Lord, that you're always available to talk to when I need to share something, but it doesn't feel like it's the place with somebody around me that I can go to you, God, so that you can help sort it out with me 
Lord, would we be a community that's a safe place, a community that exhibits your cross, that, that is for others in Christ? Lord, we pray that, uh, yeah, we would be curious about what you're doing. We know that you, God, are committed to us. You began a good work. You're carrying it to completion. We have this conversation without condemnation, but we have the conversation because we know you love us. So, Lord, I pray that anybody here that may have experienced hurt from uh, the church, I pray they know that you love them and that your church is filled with broken people who's following a perfect God. And I pray that they would know that your arms are wide for them, that you died for them, that you love them, that you want life to the full for them. That's what your, Christ says, or that's what your cross says, Jesus. And uh, yeah, help us to be a safe place, Lord, as we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.